I don't know. I'm attracted to people who looked like they existed when Wilt Chamberlain existed. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we condone leprechaun violence. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. I'm a reco- recovering basketball writer. I'm Jordan Liggins, and I'm an editor at Mojo. This is what happened. She just thought of that off the top of her head, you guys. Wow. I'm impressed. That's what we have to talk about first. Fans have been, Mm -hmm. I think unruly is actually the wrong word because it isn't strong enough. I'm really into this movement to redefine the word violence past just physical harm. And even saying that, Mm. a lot of what's happened with players and fans, a lot of those interactions are violence. So I'll just list them off. Russell Westbrook had popcorn dumped on him by a fan in Philadelphia. He was walking Mm -hmm. through the tunnel, by the way, because he was injured. So that's when that happened. Trey Young was spit on by a fan in MSG. <gasps> it would be horrible if that didn't happen in a pandemic, but we are in a pandemic as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Fans mm-hmm. cussed at and yelled racist, ugly things to T and Jamie Morant, John Morant's parents in Utah. T also said that a sexual comment was made to Jamie. And Ja didn't even know if he wanted his parents to go again. And he he also looked up during the game. He said that in the third quarter, he saw his parents talking to security. In the fourth quarter, he saw them move. I can't imagine what that does to you while you're playing, while you need to focus. Obviously, you'd be super concerned about your parents. And then there's the one that's probably caused the most controversy because a lot of people don't like this player. And there's a lot of people who are really defensive in the city it happened in. Someone threw a water bottle at Kyrie Irving in Boston. So I'll give a little backstory. Apparently, he threw the water bottle because Kyrie stepped on the Celtics head on midcourt. Like he intentionally stepped on the leprechaun's head before that. I mean, it was, you know, this has been brewing since Kyrie was in Boston. The team didn't do well like this. This is years and years and years. This is not just because last week Kyrie said that he hoped there would not be any racist comments. When reporters asked, how do you mm-hmm. think you're going to be received in Boston? Which, by the way, Which is fair. <laughs> exactly. That's completely fair. I hope fair. no one says racial epithets at me in Boston. That's like a wish we all have. Like, <laughs> Exa- No, seriously. And also asking that question. People were so upset that he said it. How do you think you'll be received? What is he supposed to say? Oh, they've been nothing but friendly to me. And if that's yeah, your with experience. Flowers. Exactly. And if that's your experience or even I think it's fair to even say that based on the experience that he's gotten from the reception from them overall, you don't have to be directly Mm -hmm. called terrible things to know that people are saying terrible things about you. Radio hosts, people on social media. There's been a lot of ugly, very racist things said to him. So that's a totally fair thing to say. Did you see what Danny Ainge said? Oh, yeah. He was like, I've never heard anything. Everyone's been nice to me. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Because it's the same. He said, I have the quote. I'll read the quote off. And he said this on a Boston radio station. Quote, I never heard any of that from any player that I've ever played with in my 26 years in Boston. I never heard that before from Kyrie. And I talked to him quite a bit. So I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. We're just playing basketball. Players can say what they want. Yes, we are just playing basketball. But again, like our whole show is about, 
they are humans first and words hurt and they matter and they have momentum behind them and they have, you know, they're purposeful. Sometimes they are purposely said to hurt. So it's not even from the players and the fans is a whole nother category because you are there to watch basketball. So you definitely shouldn't be saying anything to personally attack somebody. And sometimes it just it goes too far. And sorry, Danny Ainge, you are not the person that we need to talk to about on the subject. And you also don't get to determine when it's, oh, we're just playing basketball. Because if it's not happening to Mm -hmm. you, then you're not the one who gets to decide that. Forget Boston for a second. Boston has an obvious reputation as a city. But just forget Boston for a second. You're denying outright that in the 26 years you've been with the organization, an American city, not a single racist thing has been said. And keep in mind that Kyrie hoped that there would not be any, quote, belligerence or any racism going on, subtle racism. He even said subtle racism. And if you do a quick Google search for racist Celtics fan in TD Garden, tell me what pops up. It's not like there's nothing on that page. And the fact that he's immediately denying outright the change that this happened without considering maybe like just maybe that your immediate denial is the reason that Kyrie doesn't feel comfortable talking to you about this. Yeah, that's not a conversation to naturally have, first of all. And then I love that Marcus Smart like shot that down immediately. Someone who has only played, you know, in Boston and loves his team. But he's like, yeah, they kind of suck. I'm I'm not going to lie. Like this has happened to me and I play here and I've heard it from other people And I love that what he said, too, which is a very, very interesting point. What I've always had, especially for Utah fans, is like you are so aggressive towards other people, but then you cheer for me. And that doesn't make sense. Like, no, we're all in the same bucket. Like, you you can't be so choosy like that because I'm in a Boston uniform. You like me. Anyone else who's not, we're going to say racist things. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, and there were a lot of fans who turned on players last summer too. They were like, well, we like you when you're in a uniform, but nothing, nothing else. And that's why saying we're just playing basketball is is unfair because no, that's a shut up and dribble comment. Yeah, exactly. The funny thing is like a lot of these fans are getting bans, but there's really no way to enforce a ban. And that's like the worst Mm. thing that happens. I don't really know what the solution to that is, but that just doesn't seem strong enough like hey you can't come to our games anymore unless you wear a fake mustache it's not like all the people who are admitting fans I mean are they like debriefed or they showed pictures because that what you showed a dozen pictures before yeah and when does a lifetime ban end (laughs) people are living longer now you gotta you know what I mean how long are they looking at these pictures pictures change I just don't see a way that it's I don't think it's effective enough, especially I think the guy who chucked a water bottle got arrested. But yeah. And my thought was when I saw Kyrie step on the leprechaun, my first thought was maybe there was a bug. Like maybe he, you know, it saw it crawling and then he was like, you know what? I don't want it to ruin the court. Let me just step on it real quick to kill it. And then he was going back to the locker room to tell someone to go clean it up. No, exactly. That was my He probably went back to the locker room to get a paper towel to clean it up himself. Maybe even something more sustainable than a paper towel, like one of those reusable ones. I believe it. I think, yeah, that that adds up. Definitely. That adds up. That's what I thought. And also, like, someone said on Twitter, 
oh, it's bad because it's a leprechaun. And so it's humanized. And I was like, you know what else is humanized is the oh, human being who God. stepped on it, a sticker. So <laughs> let's not humanize Kyrie Irving, but let's humanize the flat sticker on oh, a basketball court. Oh, my God. The oh, pandemic so if has it was like the Lakers warms. logo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is that's bad. Oh, God. Yeah. We're unhappy with that. Um, I hope that people change. <laughs> the other thing yeah, I'm ruining it for the rest of us. Don't ruin it for the rest of us. Also, don't ruin it for the players. Can you imagine like your John Morant's worried for his parents? They're back in Memphis now, yeah. but he's worried for his parents. What you're worried walking to the tunnel every time because now like food and drink has been tossed at you, which is not the first time either. Yeah, right. There have been 11 games that have ended with a 15 point or more differential and six games with a 20 point or more differential. We're in the first round and the first round isn't even finished. It's finished for we're recording this on Monday. One series. So that's really bad. Um, I'm just going to straight up ask you, how do you how would you fix the first round? Oh, well, I think we have a podcast about it where a brilliant idea came about that we steal the WNBA format because there's no reason that these games should be a seven game series, especially if they should also there should be a special rule where if there's a couple blowouts, you can change it. We're going to get rid of seven. Let's just go to five. You guys have blown in the them middle out. of the series. Two games already <laughs> in the middle of the series. You know what? You don't really have a chance. Let's just shrink it immediately. So that should be a special a mercy change. Rule. But yeah, overall, let's make these five games three game series and get to the meat of it like you have here in our notes like we're already past a lot of these first series because they don't have a chance or like the heat buck series was a wash so it's like let's move on let's get to the good part this shouldn't be seven games get rid of conference seating make it league wide give the top four teams buys make the first round best of five just i mean you guys they changed the all-star format for you to rules that are so confusing, like I, once I understood them, could all of a sudden code. Like it was just so confusing <laughs> and they were so intent on making it competitive. I promise you cutting two games, potential games, because they could still be sweeps. I promise you doing that to make it more exciting and competitive and keep people engaged is what you want. I promise. I just had a thought of Like, how are we still in the first round? Like, it hit me over the weekend that we're still here and we have so, so much more basketball to be played. Why use up their energy and open the door for potential injuries? Segway to the Lakers. I was going to say, this sounds very much like a personal thing because I would take 100,000 games of Denver Blazers. But anyway, go ahead. You know... I'm frustrated. Mm -hmm. I'm frustrated that our second best player is made of glass and has this rare condition that he cannot be healed in the middle of a game (laughs) and that if he falls, he has to leave for not only the game, but probably for the rest of the series. And, you know, at this point, I think he needs like a milk contract or something like Something to strengthen his bones and his joints or (laughs) anything. And when AD left, it was like air out of the arena, deflated. Nobody else could score. I'm like, here we go again. Why? 
why does it have to be like this? No, I know. It's really scary. I wanted to ask you this question about that. Is it more important for the Suns to have a completely healthy Chris Paul or for the Lakers to have a completely healthy Anthony Davis, which matters more to their teams? I guess with the disclaimer that Chris Paul Mm. did play last game, Um, his shoulder definitely looked better. He did not have any turnovers, which is huge because the game before that, at the end, I remember just thinking it was rough. Yeah, it was really rough. His passes were going like halfway. It was like 75 percent power. So in his shots. So that's good. But he is older. I don't know. It could tighten up. What's more important? Well, I'm completely biased here, but I would say that a healthy Anthony Davis and regardless, like these are two big stars that their teams need on the floor and they need 100 percent because both, you know, Chris Paul coming out there at like 15 percent before actually was hurting his team. And 82, if he doesn't come out and he's not that aggressive, you know, 35 point AD that we had in game two, the Lakers do not win. Even if LeBron plays well, like it's apparent. So I think if he tries to limp back next game and he's, you know, just out there existing, that's not going to help us. He needs to be 100 percent and healthy. And I think that's the same for for both of them. Yeah, just for context, he missed the second half of game four with a strained groin. He came into the game playing on a sprained left knee. Was it his left that he suffered in game three? Um, More information should come out today. We're taping this on a Monday, like I said earlier. The series is two and two. Game five is Tuesday. Jordan is visibly sweating. (laughs) I would have to say with that question, I think I, I would go the other way because... oh. Because I've seen LeBron carry teams before. Is he older? Yes. Yeah. But when Chris Paul wasn't with the Suns slash was not like he was there. The lights were on, but nobody was home. They were so much worse. They were so much worse. Also, did you see LeBron's quote about um, he said these shoulders are built for a reason when he was asked if he could handle AD not being there? Like, oh, I can carry the team. Okay, it just bro. reminded me of these well, boots are made for walking. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yes, that's exactly what came to my mind. Exactly. <laughs> but the Suns quote. do have okay. more talent around them. They're a more evenly distributed roster. They have Devin Booker. So they have campaign, my MVP, my finals MVP. Just a quick God. prediction. I'm going to mercy rule you and we will move on to the Knicks. Oh, are we witnessing a Knicks implosion or a Trey Young exhibition of him making the leap or both? I think the bottom line is Julius Randle is stinking up the joint. (laughs) It's actually it's kind of hard to watch. And I know I can just like feel, you know, how in movies they have like a devil and an angel on each shoulder. Like a Knicks fan is on my shoulder watching these games, just like crying as they're seeing their most improved player, their star, Julius Randle, just not rising to the occasion. And then you look on the other side and it's Atlanta Hawks fans on my other shoulder, just like cheering because they're like, this is who Trey, we knew you could be this. You're amazing. Your hair is bad, but you're amazing. And it's sad to see Julius Randle, you know, he's making... 24% of his field goals, 13 of 54 shooting in games one through three, which is like, who? So I I was looking at that. This guy stinks. (laughs) 
I, <laughs> but I was just like looking at that percentage and I just jotted down some notes in my notes app of other things, random facts that are also at 25%. Oh, because just to, you know, put it in perspective of the small sample size that this is. So here's some random facts for you. 25% of American men are now six feet or taller compared to only 4% in the 1900s. Okay. Crazy? All right. Dating apps would make you think it's higher because people lie on the apps. Speaking of dating apps, 25% of adults say online romances don't count as cheating, quote unquote. Okay. Okay. Also, 25% of people alphabetize their spice rack. Who the hell does that? I put small, it I put it by things that go together. Size. That's <laughs> Where did you find these? <laughs> did the you... internet. But here's the thing, all of those random facts better than Julius Randle's shooting percentage at 24%. That's rough. That's rough. That's rough. The problem is it's not even It's pretty bad. It's not even just him. <laughs> it's not even just him. Like Reggie Bullock right. has been so off his game. And when I was thinking about that watching it, Reggie Bullock is off his game. Think about what I just said. Like, as oh, this is like a, another huge thing, a huge issue for the Knicks. We can't forget that, that during the regular season, they overachieved with this roster. And the Knicks mm-hmm. were one of my favorite talking points for people who thought that player empowerment and super teams were ruining the league. Here is this team mm-hmm. that essentially grew organically after years of trying to move very middling guards around and then signed 100 power forwards. It was very organic growth here, but they did overachieve. Julius Randle was an all-star. He's not playing one, like one right now. You're absolutely right. I think the other mm-hmm. issue with this is that Trey Young is doing the things he does well so well, and he's also not doing the things he doesn't do well as poorly, if that makes sense. Because yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the shooting, the scoring, the passing, it's always been there. I, God, I love a player who can just play off balance and be his own center of gravity. Like, he's also just so entertaining. And you get that two for one mm-hmm. watching him on threes, on layups. It's very like Steph Curry esque. I wrote a couple of years ago that Trey looks uh, elastic sometimes because he's undersized, but he's exceptional in finding mm-hmm. pockets and space to be able to make passes past his reach. Watching that's been wonderful. What's not usually wonderful with Trey is watching him on defense. But they haven't really mm-hmm. been able to exploit Trey Young's defense through the entire series. And even when the Knicks looked like they were beginning to figure it out on Sunday, they couldn't capitalize on it. I'll give you an example. Right. In the first quarter, he got switched on to Julius Randle after a screen. And Julius Randle took a shot two steps in from the three-point line. You have to capitalize on that. Throwing bricks. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So... It's a little bit of both. I also love that Trey Young is becoming a Knicks villain and everyone is comparing it to Reggie Miller. And I think that that's a lot has a lot to do with the fact that Spike Lee has been on the sidelines through all of that and is still wearing the same outfits. I know. Does he just have like multiple or is he just reusing for like a good luck charm? But he should probably switch it up because then. Maybe they'll win. It's hard to lose and look that ridiculous. He looks great when they win, but yikes. Yeah. I don't know. And then Julius Randle came out and said, I still like our chances. He's like, I believe that we can make a 3-1 comeback. And to that, I say, shoot better. 
and the rest of your team needs to shoot better. But also going with Trey Young, the thing I was getting frustrated about is, yes, he can shoot threes, but anytime he gets in the paint, it's a problem, not only for his float game, but also for passing, throwing lobs, being able to draw so much attention. And then they have shooters on shooters on the outside. So there's this drill that you usually do in basketball practice where it's a defensive drill and you are walling up to stop anyone from getting a foot in the paint. Like you're trying not to let them even get a foot in there. And I feel like Tibbs needs to run that drill at practice because he's already past Reggie Bullock. Like he's he's already behind him and trouble is about to happen because he's in the paint. He can do whatever he wants. So if they're not even doing a conscious effort to stop him completely, then yeah, night, night. It's time. It's, it's good night. Okay. We have next up a wine segment where we are trying CJ McCollum's wine with a sommelier mm-hmm. Sixers fan, Maeve McDermott. Here is Maeve and CJ McCollum's wine. Hi, I'm Maeve. I live in Brooklyn. I have been doing restaurant stuff, I guess, in totality for something terrifying like 15 years. Um, Oh, (laughs) nuts. But I've been doing wine solely full time for coming on two years now, which is really, really exciting. And yeah, I'm so excited. I grew up about 20 minutes north of Philadelphia in a very big, crazy Philadelphia sports family. Their main focus, kind of their main fandom was always the Eagles. Um, it's, it was all very Silver Linings playbook. But my mom actually, um, she always played basketball. She always loved the Sixers. So I kind of Um, In my teenage years, becoming an adult, um, just kind of gravitated towards the team. And especially the past few years with this insane process. And now that they're, you know, perennial playoff contenders, I am unfortunately a a huge Sixers (laughs) fan and experience all of the suffering that that comes with that. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in. I can't wait to unpack that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a lot. It's really tough. Today, we are trying CJ McCollum's wine, um, another player product placement segment. So I'm going to show it off. Jordan, will you tell us about the wine from the website? Yes, I am so excited about this. First of all, I love CJ McCollum. You guys know this about this podcast. He's one of my favorite players. He's also in business with Channing Fry on this wine. So that is really exciting. It's called One Barrel. And we were joking about this. It's very sport mixed with wine. One barrel, one mission, one challenge. Like I just feel like they do a little chant and a little huddle before their meetings like they totally do. But it's based out of Oregon and their whole thing is about like diversity. They don't feel like the wine industry has a lot of diversity. And I love it says it on the bottle, too. But their whole thing is about being inclusive, regardless of color, class or creed. Love that. Love and alliteration. I was just about to so say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about it. What varietal are we doing today? We are doing the Chardonnay. And the name of their Chardonnay is Hazelfern, which sounds hmm. like a celebrity's child. Yeah. 
This is a 100% Chardonnay wine from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. The Willamette Valley, I guess Oregon in general, but especially the Willamette Valley, stands out as a winemaking community that kind of likens himself more to Burgundy, more like classic refined French winemaking than California. Interestingly enough, there's this really fascinating thing that a lot of the great winemaking regions in the US and Europe are all at the same latitude. So the Willamette Valley is actually at the same latitude as Burgundy, which is, you know, this site for, you know, what's seen as the world's most distinguished Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, so I guess theoretically, this wine should be like medium plus to full bodied. Um, it's aged in a mix of neutral and new oak, which means it's going to be like butterscotch, Ooh. vanilla, toasty, an expansive texture. First, you're supposed to look at it on like a white surface. You just look at it, what shade of gold it is, what mm. color undertones you get. I mean, this could be more pigmented. That doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily say anything about the flavor. But yeah, it's a pale yellow, golden undertones. Then you smell it, see what you're getting on the nose, which is a lot of fruit. So which, good. You know, we all, it does smell we're all good. expecting here. Let's go ahead and drink because I'm like very eager to drink. I know, I'm ready. I'm like, really I'm waiting for what Maeve says so I can agree. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Oh my pleasant. God. Yes. I was going to say that. Yeah. It's really pleasant. It's balanced. This is really tasty. Um, it, it, it's actually the, good. Yeah. No, this is like. Not always say. No, this is like, I would totally feel comfortable like selling this, um, like in a restaurant setting. Um, the oak is really well integrated. So you're tasting it and it's expansive and full, but it's not like you know, a butter bomb. It, you know, it doesn't taste cheap, um, but it still tastes full. And I probably should have chilled it a little bit. This is really tasty. I also love that the whole theme is like, it's pleasant, it's understated. And you could mm -hmm. say that about CJ, where it's like, you know, he's not the star. He could be, but he's a little more of a silent assassin, little secret walking around the court. And I, I think that that equates with his wine. I've never met someone who like dislikes CJ McCollum. He's seems like a wonderful guy. Very true. Um, a very capable player, having a great season, and is like sneakily or sometimes not so sneakily super potent. And I oh, think yeah. the same could be said mm -hmm. about this wine. I think you could serve this to people who want. New World Chardonnay for people who want something, you know, a little bit leaner, um, like a more Chablisian Chardonnay. It, you know, this is a super accessible white wine. And write that word down. Like Chablisian. I would feel, I would feel comfortable, <laughs> like in a in a restaurant setting. It's super potent. This is this wine is at thirteen point five percent. Let's talk. Sixers. Maeve, what are you feeling? Yeah. Um, what do you feel? Do you feel like I'm Embiid feeling... is your MVP? Do you feel that way in your heart of hearts? I mean, 
Yeah, of course. You gotta. I just feel anxious. Like there's no way, there's no way not to be anxious. I mean, part of me knows that there's no way it could end as poorly as the last playoffs Mm. with the Celtics sweep or be as heartbreaking as the playoffs before that with the Kawhi shot. So it's looking up. (laughs) Like it's just constant anxiety. You know the term moral panics? Does everyone know the term moral panics? No. No. A moral panic is like the satanic panic where in the 90s, parents were like, oh, my God, if you listen to this song backwards, it means the devil. It's like people oh, yeah. overreacting about things that like there's this like I feel like the Sixers have this all the time. Like there's the moral panic of like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid can't play together. And I don't know. But I mean, it's not Maury's fault. But since he's there now, I'm like, it's really catchy to call those Maury panics. <laughs> <laughs> Maury panics. <laughs> so how do you feel about the various Maury panics like are they legit or not like uh, and you can really go far back mm-hmm. the drafts yeah um the injuries like will Joel ever be healthy enough to like really be the leader of this team can they play together like did any of them legitimately concern you I mean this is like a prison of their own <laughs> making like I think as long as we're in like the process era and it's all like we're gonna construct this thing and we're gonna you know, lose to win. And it's, you know, we're going to craft this team. It's, I feel like all of the machinations of the past few years have created a climate where you're watching and you're just like, the team doesn't fit right. (laughs) Like they, all of these, you know, maneuverings and now, now Maury's in there and he's like the the data guy and master, you know, the maneuverer. And it's, it it is, I mean, a lot of it is, is meaningless, you know, Mm -hmm. like, especially looking at all of the anxiety that ended last season, you know, like, oh, Ben and Joel can never play together. Like it's broken. Like Tobias is broken. The team is broken. Like, what are we going to do? And in a summer, all of the, like, it it was all mostly this. It was like, see guys, like see how easy it was to fix most of this stuff. And like, I get the, the panic you know, oh, like Ben is, hasn't taken the leap, but like, you know, either this is enough or it's not. And we trade him. And I think that we will see how the next few weeks go and then, you know, blow up the team or not. I don't know. (laughs) I, I would have loved to see. Blow up the team feels. (laughs) It's a little extreme. (laughs) I'm here for it. Let's do it. Danny Green, first you know, to go. She's like, she's like, no, everyone's overreacting, but blow up the team. Everyone's is overreacting, but blow up the team. The processor is over. Burn it all down. Let's say how this matches up with CJ. This year, he's having a career high in points, a career high in assists, despite his, you know, um, setback after he came back from injury. So. This wine for me has gotten better as we've gone on. So I would say that matches up very well. I think this wine is is reliable. CJ is okay. reliable. Ooh, this wine That's really good. So something that's really one of the most fascinating things about the wine and how it's grown is the best wines in the world all pretty exclusively come from growing environments that don't make it easy for things to grow. 
if you are, you know, planting vines and and if you're planting like vines in like a super fertile field, there's lots of (laughs) other places for the, you know, the sun and the energy to go and the wines will be fat, not very good. The best wines in the world, like Bordeaux, it's gravel soils, like champagne um, is made in like chalk caves. The Willamette Valley, where this wine is from, you know, it's cold. It's not warm a lot. It is a difficult place to grow wine. Um, Mm. And as a result, just because, you know, difficult growing conditions is really conducive to excellent balanced wines. And I think, you know, look at Portland, not a, you know, they're great. I love the blazer. It's a hard environment to grow as a team. Not the biggest market, Mm -hmm. not the most resources. And yet, you know, the the wines that come out of the Willamette Valley are unquestionably some of the best in in the U.S., if not the whole like new world growing environment. And, you know, look at the perennial, you know, playoff contenders that the Blazers are. Honestly, this was good wine. This wine, I mean, right now, 10 out of 10. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Maeve. I was like super impressed by this wine. I I mean, could it be, could it pack a little bit more of a punch? Like, could it be a little bit more expressive? Probably. Um, But it could be so much worse. This wine is like a partnership and, you know, part of the sales go to charity and the whole idea of the collaboration is to like encourage underserved communities to have access to wine. And, you know, I think there, there, you know, Dwayne Wade and like Josh Hart are some of the other guys mm-hmm. who like have foundations to help, you know, people get into wine and just like shouting out CJ for being a fan of wine, but also being mindful of like the many access issues that come into having wine as a hobby, which you kind of only get mm-hmm. to do if you have a certain level of privilege. So not faulting anyone, any NBA players for how they enjoy their wine, but also giving credit where it's due to CJ for being mindful of those things and, you know, helping make that hobby more accessible to others. Because wine really is a really fun thing to get into. That's our show. Please tell us your favorite player's wine or send us your favorite player's wine because we're open to that. Talk about it on our voicemail at 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show. Spinsters is hosted by me and Jordan Liggins. This episode was produced by Jordan, Isabel Jocelyn, and Alex Ford. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yales, and me. Hi, my name is Ken. I'm calling from Washington, D.C., and I just want to chime in on this uh, GOAT, or greatest of all time, argument in the NBA, and uh, I think Bill Russell should be considered the GOAT, as he's the greatest winner in NBA history. He won 11 titles in 13 years, 
and he started the Boston Celtics dynasty as they won his first year and eight out of nine his his first nine years and the one he didn't win in that first nine was he was injured during the playoffs so my man is Bill Russell he's got more rings than fingers and if you're going to say who's the greatest player I think you have to consider Bill Russell the greatest of all times 